need to go to school. And here's your day. What do you think of what's going on right now, mate? These evil little invisible parasites. Satan worshipping Freemason moron. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not run by factions. Get the fuck out of camera! There are much more powerful international forces in play. Is this pink guy? Is this what pink guy is? I don't fucking know what's happening. Please get outside and look at the moon quickly. It's been crazy, guys, but guess what? It's how it is, mate. Mate, because I want to do this Well, I ain't spending any time on it. G'day listeners and welcome to the Conditional Release Program. I'm Peter Hoisted, aka Jack the Insider. And I'm Joel Hill and today we have a special program. It's a story of a mother's grief magnified by not knowing exactly how and why her nine-year-old son died. It's a story of overwhelming sorrow told by a mother and her daughter who lost a person they loved and cherished for reasons they still don't understand. Uh, Jenny Robertson's young son, Troy, died on the family property in September 1987. It looked like an accident, or at worst, negligence on the part of Jenny's father. The New South Wales coroner made that finding based on police reports 36 years ago, accidental death by electrocution. Jenny has always harboured doubts, and recently she received new information that points to the possibility of a crime that led to the death of her son, Troy. The story is set in the world of harness racing. Back in the 1980s, the industry was beset with race fixing, with organised criminal gaming syndicates overseeing the scams, and woe betide anyone who got in the way. Jenny Robertson and her daughter Mel, who was then just six years of age when the brother she doted after died, joined Jack for an interview where they discussed the circumstances of Troy's death and that new information that's come to light. Now, please share this episode far and wide, listeners. The more, the better. After 36 years of not knowing, Jenny and Mel could find some peace if the facts are established. People who have been reluctant to speak uh, may may now want to come forward. This is a harrowing tale, and we bring it to you in the hope that some good comes from it. G'day listeners and welcome uh, to the Conditional Release Program. We've got a very special event uh, here today. Uh, We are looking at a true crime story um, and it relates to the death of Troy Robert Alderton, a nine-year-old boy uh, on the the cusp, three months shy of his 10th birthday, who died uh, on the 5th of September 1987 at Rouse Hill in Sydney, uh, then a uh, sort of semi-rural area in, uh, in the outer Sydney, now very much a suburban part of Sydney. Um, <clears throat> and this is a story about certainly a mother's grief and an investigation into an accident, what is what was formally determined to be an accident uh, that led to his death, that's Troy's death. Uh, his mother... Jenny Robertson is joining me today, and I welcome her to you. Um, Jenny, on the 5th of September 1987, your very young son died. Um, Tell me how you felt about that on the day and how you've dealt with it over the years. Many years have transpired. I presume that grief never leaves you? Hello, Peter. Yes. No, grief never does leave you. People have this way of interpreting that you get over grief but it's not what actually happens you might learn to live with the situation of the grief but you never get over it does it get better or worse as the years go by for me personally 
I have been able to come to a place of acceptance. Um, but no, birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas, all those important occasions in my life, you still are very aware that, well, in my case, my son is not there. Like I, I never got to see who he married. I never got to meet my grandchildren. I never got to see him have a career. So, no, it's very present in those aspects of my life all the time. Very real for you today, as, as perhaps as much as, as real as it was, as shocking as it must have been uh, in 1987. Um, did you accept at any point that, that it was an accident? Or have you it's, always had suspicions about what happened? I have always had suspicions, but it's an interesting situation because, yes, it was an accident, but it was an accident that shouldn't have happened to him. We'll get into the circumstances of it shortly, circumstances of Troy's death shortly, um, <clears throat> but uh, you have received some information recently that has told you that perhaps the formal findings aren't correct, that Troy was, um, uh, that Troy's death occurred as part of perhaps a broader conspiracy, if that's the right, right way to put it? Yeah, no, that's how I'd put it, Peter, yes. And you've gone to police with that new information? I have. So what we're talking about is a matter that is um, subject to uh, an ongoing police investigation. We don't know at the Conditional Release Program, and neither you, neither do you, Jenny, I presume, where that police investigation is at. But did you reported this this new information to um, uh, to police, to New South Wales Police, uh, I think several months ago? Yes. Okay. So let's now look at the circumstances of Troy's death. Just to give some background um your father was involved in harness racing that's correct yes what was his name george howe he's george howe and he's deceased now isn't he yes he is and he was and he was a trainer owner trainer or a trainer he was just an owner breeder owner breeder in the harness racing business and your husband what was his name Robert Alderton. Robert Alderton, and he was involved in the harness racing business as well. Yes, he was. He was a trainer driver. How old were you when you married? 18. You were 18 when you married Robert, and how old was he at the time? 21. He was 21. And you had three children? Two. Two, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, two, two children, one of them Troy. Yes, Troy was the oldest. And and uh, your, your youngest with, with Robert was... Melinda. Melinda, who's here with us today too. Um, so you were raised, or sorry, you were you were married and you raised uh, your two children at um, at this property in Rouse Hill. So tell me a little bit about the property. When we moved to the property when I was four and my father always had breed mares and I actually was a big part of running the property because my father actually worked as a taxi driver in the city. And um, so we grew up with horses and standard bred horses, the trotting industry. That was our life. That was all our life consisted of. So for us to go out to the trots was a big thing. <laughs> that was the only place we were ever taken. So, I mean, gambling and everything goes with that 
kind of lifestyle was what we grew up in. And and the property itself, it was, uh, I believe, a sort of five-acre property in Rouse Hill? Um, originally, it was my father owned five acres and then he had a partner in the business who bought a further 10 acres. So we we actually had more than five acres that we had for the broodmares. Man, it'd be worth a fair bit these days, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, so, so I keep getting told. <laughs> yes, um, I'm sure you do. Um, on the property... Uh, obviously, there's there's livestock, there's, there's harness racing horses. You have married harness racing trainer, owner trainer, yes, in Robert Alderton. And on that property, there was a dam. So, as I understand it, there are two houses on the property. Is that correct? Or well, what by the time two dwellings? Well, yeah. by the time um, what happened to Troy? Me growing up, no, there wasn't. But then they sold part of the land, and there was a prop. The property next to us was sold. And there was an actual business there, and they had this dam that used to be ours on their property, but we still used it, or my husband still used it. So there was an arrangement made about the dam, access to the dam, which we'll talk about in length in a a little while. But when you married Robert, you... Um, uh, you raised your family in the in the at the home of the property. Yes. And as I understand it, your um, father and mother uh, were also living on the property in a separate dwelling. Yes, it was a house attached to the main dwelling. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and your your father George Howe and his wife Zelma lived in this separate, well, perhaps attached, but, yes. but a separate yes. separate dwelling. Yes. And that's where you raised your children. Tell me about what you remember of the 5th of September, 1987. Your son, Troy, is, is playing with a friend. Yes. I had a friend over to the property. Tell me what happened. Um, he had a friend in the morning. It's actually the day before Father's Day. So in the morning, I took my, my daughter and Troy, Melinda and Troy, to go and do Father's Day shopping. So we came home after that, had lunch, and a friend of mine turned up with her three girls and Troy played a little bit with them and then he went to ride his horse with his father. So he actually spent the afternoon with his father. Okay. So last time I actually saw him was around lunchtime. Was around lunchtime, perhaps about one o'clock? Yeah. Okay. My son had planned with his little friend Darren, unbeknownst to myself or anyone else, to go to the dam next door and get some yabbies for him. Okay. And he had also organised for Darren to ask his family to invite us over for tea that night so he could get his yabbies. Okay, all right. The last time you saw your son alive was around lunchtime uh, and he was presumably um, um, playing around. What was he doing as far as you knew that day, that afternoon? He was under the supervision of his father. They had his horse Bluey out because I had been working with my son with his horse with how he could ride the horse and what to do with the horse and he wanted to show his dad what he could do so I'd organized for him to spend the afternoon with his dad and the horse and as far as you know as the day progressed that was what was happening yes all right and at what point did you start to realize that something was wrong i it hadn't got dark, it was about five o'clock and I put a baked dinner on. I, I was in the house and I put a baked dinner on for tea. Troy loved to watch Parramatta football. Right. So that always came on at six o'clock. 
So I went down, put the TV on, expecting him to come in because his football was about to start, and put the football on, and I sat down for a few minutes, and I became ice cold, like someone had walked over my grave. And I thought, oh, I'm freezing, so I'll go and have a shower. So when I was in the bathroom having a shower, I heard my father yell out in a distressed voice, where's Troy? And that there was a search commenced for Troy at that time, uh, and it may have actually begun earlier, um, that involved your father and it involved your husband and involved a number of other people. Can you tell us who was on the property that day at that time? Obviously, when Troy went missing. Yes, that's right. So obviously you're there, your father George Howe was there, his wife Zelma was there, your husband was there. Yeah. Who else was there? The neighbour. Um, he came to help us whose property the dam was on and other people just turned up. I don't know where everybody turned up from. I went out um, and my father, my husband, the neighbour, um, they were all at the dam in the neighbour's property, but they kept sending me away. But I just knew, I just knew this was bad because Troy never went anywhere. He wasn't a child that would wander off. He wasn't a child that got into trouble. So I went inside to ring the police. That was your first. That was your first reaction was to just to contact the police. There, there you could hear your uh, father yelling out for his grandson, your son, uh, to appear. And there were a, a group of people around the dam at that time that included the neighbour, that included your husband, and that included. Uh, at this stage, was Roy Roots there? No. Okay. I called the police, I hung up, and my phone rang. I picked it up, and it was his wife, Rita, inviting us for tea. Right. As Darren had already arranged. And I just went, Troy's missing, and hung up. That's all I did, because I I wanted to get back out there. And Roy and Rita turned up in their car. Within minutes? Yes, they very quick. They didn't live far away, I appreciate No. And they had a son too? They, they, they have Darren and little Roy. And, and, and little Roy. And uh, was Roy with your son at the time he disappeared or was that later? No. What happened was they didn't bring their sons with them to the farm, um, which I didn't take any notice of because I was distracted trying to find my son. And... When Roy drove in with the car still going, he was driving the car. He jumped out of the car and went to jump in the dam. Okay. Did you see that? Did you see this is Roy Senior? Now, Roy Senior is still involved in the harness racing business. We'll talk about harness racing shortly. But did you see him actually emerge from the car and go to the dam? No, my daughter did. And I was told that happened by the others because I'd been told to go and check another swimming dam we'd had down the bottom of the of the property. The dam itself, just describe it, you know, how big was it? 30 metres. What what was in it? Did it have did it have grass growth? Did it have No, it was just brown dirt water. Right. And it would have probably been 
two and a half, three metres deep. It wasn't very deep. No reeds growing on the no. sideline or anything, but there was a pump there, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Tell me about that. Well, when I grew up on the farm, that was the pump we used to pump the water for the... Because we grew up with tank water or dam water. So the horses drank, the, obviously, the dam water. And that pump had been there for a long time, but apparently... I have to change that story because I got found out later that that the owner, the new owner of the property, had changed the pump, so it was a new pump. Fairly new pump at the time. Yes. Um, perhaps it, it had been in there for a couple of years. Yes. A couple of years. It's I understand that's when the neighbours moved in around yes. about that time. Okay. But and there'd always been a pump on that. Day. There'd always been a pump to, to extract water from it. To, water the horses, as they say, and, and also to, to, to wash the horses down yes. after they were training and, and so forth, yeah? Okay. And at what point did you realise um, that your son was in or around the dam? Myself personally? Yes. I, as I said, they had sent me down the bottom of the paddock they kept telling me to go look here, go look there. And as a mother, your instinct, you just want to find your child. You don't, you just look. So I went running down to the bottom of five acres and when I was coming back up, I heard my father scream, like this mortifying scream, horrified. And as soon as I heard that, I, I knew. They, I knew. And you made your way to the dam then? Yes. And what did you see when you got there? I saw my son's body lying on the side of the dam. Um, but there was there was no one with him. My husband wasn't with him. My father wasn't with him. My mother wasn't with him. He was just lying there. Was there any attempt made to resuscitate him? Not that you could see at the time. Not by anybody else at that time. I did. I that was my first instinct was to go into resuscitation, and I was doing CPR on him. And the next thing I knew, the police had arrived and had taken over. So that was the call that you made that, that, yes. that, that to, to, to summon the police, and the, the police arrived, uh, and they did administer. Um, they started CPR. CPR. And I stood at sat at Troy's head and kept saying, come on, mate, because I, I didn't know he was dead. I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that he was dead. Uh, um, did you think that he had drowned? Do you think that it was a drowning incident? Um, to be honest, I had no idea. It, it, my brain didn't even go there because I didn't, know, I didn't see them pull him out. I, like by the time I got up there... He was on the side of the bank. So how all this happened hadn't even been comprehended by me. There had been an attempt to take him from the water. Did you see that? No. You didn't see that. Uh, we'll talk about that just briefly and what you learned about it afterwards. But your son had actually been electrocuted. Yes. Not drowned. Yes. And it relates to the pump that was in the dam that was used to extract water um, for the horses. Um, uh, and you would learn that afterwards, and presumably you would learn that once um, Troy was tr transported, I believe, to Westmead Hospital? Yes. 
um, and then you would have seen, you would have spoken with doctors at that time. Tell me about that. Well, I just want to say um, the ambulance arrived. Yes. And I was the only one, my Linda was there and I was there. None of my family was there. So obviously they thought he had drowned initially. Then they realised he had been electrocuted. So they had to change their course of action for him and they transferred him to Westmead. So I looked around, no one was there, so I ran into the house and my husband, my mother, my father and Rita and Roy were all standing there talking amongst themselves. That to me, and and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but that to me is... um very strange behaviour. I, I, I just, I, I don't quite understand what they were doing, why they weren't still at the scene. Neither what were I. they talking about in, 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 in the house? Well, as soon as I walked in, they stopped. And I was, like, hysterical and just saying, come on, we have to get to the hospital. And they just stood there and looked at me. It was like, and I'm thinking... This, is, this is your father... This is your mother. This is your husband as well. Who else was there? Rita and Roy. Right. Um, And I just kept saying we have to get to the hospital because I was in a hurry to get to the hospital. And um, finally Rita turned around and said, well, we'll take you. And they did. And when we arrived, obviously, you know, a bit of time had elapsed because of the delay getting them to take me. And we had to sit there for nearly a few hours before they actually came to us and just, they didn't say how he had died. They just declared that he was dead. He was, they didn't tell you that he died from electrocution, but no. you presumably learned that at some point. Yes, when the police came. When the police came. <clears throat> and they conducted an investigation, which was a subject, well, which was referred to the coroner, but there was no coronial inquest um, no formal proceedings other than you were advised and we have the documents here you've been provided with the coroner's report which include a number of statements from witnesses and police uh, that indicated that this was an accidental death. Yes. Um, and the issue and going through those documents is that the water in the dam had become uh, electrified um, because um, uh, uh, of a, well, the, you might describe this better than me, I've, I've read the documents. So there was a, there was a, a long extension cord or series of extension cords that extended from the dam some, I gather, about 50 or 60 metres away mm-hmm. to the neighbouring... To our house. To, it was to your house. Yes. <clears throat> and an air conditioning unit, I believe, was plugged in there. Yes. Oh, of course, yes. Well, I've got that mixed up. So the dam is on the other property and the extension cord... Went through the fence into our place. Went goes through the fence into your place and was plugged in to an air conditioning or a power point near an air yes, conditioning that's unit. that's correct. What sort of condition was that, electrical? Well, um, We'll talk about that perhaps in a little bit more detail. Um, but that was your father's responsibility, wasn't it? He actually installed it and he was not a licensed electrician. And did you did you blame him? Initially, I believed he had something to do with it, yes. And so you've always had suspicions that this was 
um, may, may well have been an accidental, your son's death may well have been accidental, but there may have been a higher or, or, or um, a different purpose, a different motivation here around the, uh, around the accident. Correct. Uh, um, when I look at your father's statement, he says a number of things that I find are quite odd. He said that the wiring was done by a licensed electrician a few years ago. I engaged the electrician myself to do this job. Uh, I met him. Uh, I met him in from memory the Richmond or Riverston RSL. Has he ever been to the Richmond or Riverston RSL? No. So this is a lie that he told police. Definitely. Why did he tell police that lie? What do you think about that? Well, I believe that Dad, for one, knew that he had put the PowerPoint in himself, which was illegal, and that was the cause of the dam becoming electrified. It certainly was. There's no doubt about that. Reading the, there are various um, 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 technical reports um, that that indicate that the uh, the pump itself was functioning. Mm-hmm. And had no electrical fault within it. No. But it was the cabling, the electrical cabling, the extension cords and the repairs that were commonly done to it and at least 10 places yes. um, where he had basically rewired rewired the, the cabling himself. Yes. Again, um, illegal. Well, yes, and yes, it is. Yeah, and certainly, it seems to me that his evasion in this statement relates to, as you say, this fear. Did he ever sort of accept any responsibility? Did what did he say to you about this? Did he ever say, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I didn't get an electrician in. I did that. I didn't get someone in to to assist uh, to to make sure that I, that I didn't just go out to a hardware store and buy." A, 100-metre extension cord, which wouldn't have uh, had all the breaks and interruptions done to it. My uh, father never said sorry. It just wasn't his, wasn't no. his thing. Um, but what he did... But he, yes, but he did tell you something, didn't he? Yes, he, he, he did. did uh, some years later. How many years later did he make an admission to you? Um, after my mum died, so three to four Three to four years ago, or three to four years after after Troy died, my my mum passed away three years after Troy. Okay, um, he would say when I asked him or approached him about the circumstances of Troy's death, he would say, "Well, if it was Robert, it'd be murder, but it was Troy, so it was an accident." So he was indicating to you that this may have been a planned event either by him or some other person, to dispose of your husband. Correct. Uh, And your... uh, um, If if we understand it, Robert himself, your your husband, had been using the dam that day, hadn't he? Yes, he had. Yeah. What time... Around what time would that have been? In the morning. In the morning. Yes. So not in the afternoon, but in the morning he has used a dam as he probably did every day. Yes. To provide fresh water for the horses and, and, and hose the horses down if they'd been training. And yeah. he'd also washed his car. And he'd, washed, and he'd washed his car that day. So he was using the dam that morning. Yes. On the, sun, on the day of your, the death of your son. It seems to me 
um, my first um, my first thoughts on this was that, that there was there's some sort of malfunction in the pump, either deliberate or otherwise. But it would seem that someone has slung in a section of the electrical cord, the electrical cabling, into the water. Yes. Uh, and we're not police investigators. We're not saying whether that was accidental or not. But there are a number of suspicious circumstances around that. And your your father's admission to you would indicate that there was some other motivation for yes. putting that cabling into the water. Yes. And that was uh, to... Uh, either harm or kill your husband, your then husband, or give him a warning on, on some level. What we did, what we do know, is that when your son was uh, removed from the extracted from the dam, that, I believe that was Roy Root Senior who who did that or tried to do that on the first occasion. Tried to, and it's was, so it's a little bit unclear who actually pulled Troy out of the dam. Um, but yes, you're right. Roy did try. He jumped out of the car and ran straight into the dam. And he was blowing back. He, he the dam was electrified and he had, yes. And according to the statement provided by your husband, sorry, by, by your father, uh, it would indicate that, uh, that that he then, that's your father, removed the, uh, removed the, uh, the, the cord, unplugged the cord from the pump at that time. I, I believe my father also got electrocuted, trying to also go in the dam. Then he removed. He doesn't say that in his statement. No, he doesn't. But he's made a number of evasions and clear mistruths and untruths there. You grew up around harness racing. Yes. And I just want to break away and tell listeners that in the 1970s, is my knowledge of it, 1970s and 80s, harness racing was... As bent as a corkscrew. It really was a very bent caper. Um, harness racing is a little bit different to thoroughbred racing, for example, in that you have riders rather than jockeys. And riders um, uh, can pull up horses and can make them go faster or slower depending on what's required at any particular point in a race. So harness racing became very corrupt around uh, and, and involved race fixing around some criminal syndicates, um, big gamblers and and big organised uh, uh, gambling syndicates. Uh, and, and one such was run by George David Freeman. It's considered that George Freeman was probably more responsible for, than anybody else for almost killing the sport because it just became... That your your unaware gambler would lose his money every time. the 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 scenario is that if you have eight horses in the field, you approach you approach seven of the riders and you pay them an amount of money to make sure that their horse doesn't win. And that money and and that money not that wouldn't be just a, a fifty or a hundred dollars in their pockets. It would be fifty or a hundred invested on the winner. So if that winner was eight to one, then everyone would receive eight hundred dollars. And that that's the kind of basic race fixing that took place. There were a number of syndicates involved in this. The most prominent was George Freeman. Did your father have any association with George David Freeman? Yes, he did. Um, did you ever see Freeman at the property? No, I didn't. 
How did you know that uh, Freeman and he were at least associates? He told us. And Freeman at this stage, and you may not have known this, have been aware of this at the time, being a, a young mother in your 20s, but but George Freeman is a notorious figure. You, yeah. you would know that. Yes, since. I know that now. Been involved in murders, been involved in race fixing, uh, been involved in um, illegal gambling, operation of illegal casinos, etc. He was... In the 1980s, I've described him as the King of Sydney because he was sort of an untouchable figure. So what was the nature of your father's association with him? All I know is that my parents started out with a a table tennis gambling casino down in Parramatta Road. Table, Table tennis? Yes, Petersham. Right. And that George Freeman was a frequent... Visitor. So my father's association was he, with him was long before I was I came along. So he'd known Freeman for a very long time, yes. and Freeman was a notorious race fixer. Your husband too. Did he have any? Um, did he have any uh, associations with uh, people of of that nature of that caliber like Freeman? Well, my husband worked for my father. So your husband's still alive and we we don't want to um, uh, we don't want to uh, strip his reputation, but but he would have had similar associations. Before my husband worked for my father, he also worked for Laurie Moles. And if anyone that knows the industry would know about Laurie Moles and how the industry ran, if you were in trouble, it was quite, you know, frequent that a driver at Harold Park after the event would be bashed up after the event by whoever for not doing what they were told or prior to if you had a horse that was going to Harold Park and they wanted to back it and they thought you weren't going to behave, they would park a hearse. And Laurie Miles often had a hearse parked around his property. At the front of the it was place. just a just known a reminder. Thing. Yeah, yeah, it was just a known thing within the industry. Oh, Laurie's got the hearse again. He must be, you know, something big's happening. And my husband initially worked for him before he came and worked for my father. Your husband was quite a successful trainer. Yes, he was. He became the um, young trainer driver of the year under Laurie Miles, which was like the, as high as they can get as recognition goes. And a very successful, had, had one particularly successful horse. Yes, um, one that my father bred, Camilla Rainbow. I think something like 26 successive or consecutive wins. That's correct, yes. Um, so uh, both your father and, and uh, as a breeder and, and your husband as a, as a rider trainer um, uh, have... have enjoyed quite a lot of success within the within the industry but there were there clearly were some signs that um uh, of, of some pretty dark forces in the background yes do you remember any such event yes roughly six weeks um before troy's tragic accident we had camilla rainbow in at harold park on the friday night And on the Thursday night, I answered the phone and a voice told me that if Robert 
my husband drove Camilla Rainbow at Harold Park on the Friday night, he or my horse would receive a bullet. So that, that was a, an obvious threat. Was that referred to any of the authorities, any of the racing authorities? Yes, we um, contacted Harold Park and the stewards and there was a big inquiry. They brought all the drivers in to discuss the situation and, yes, it was actually quite a, a big incident. I actually do believe it. So it's a matter of public record yes, that, yes, that, 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 that this was at least investigated. Yes. And, and, and did the horse run that night at Harold Park? No. It didn't. It was scratched? Yes. Essentially scratched. Okay. Um, so the person making the threat basically got what they asked for, really, yes. in a sense. Hmm. Were there any other instances that you remember that just that you can look back on now and think, gee, that's very strange? Yes, there there is. Um, and this happened a fair few years ago. We um, would go to Newcastle to race or Maitland to race or all the outside tracks because you had to get the grades up to go to Harold Park. And we went. We were in at Maitland on a, I believe it was a Saturday night, and we'd gone to Maitland and we'd actually been quite successful. And we were on our way home and we were in our truck. We had a truck where we could fit four horses and we were coming back from Maitland going down the highway just near the Mooney Mooney. With four horses on board, With presumably. four horses, yeah. a tonne of or more of horses well, on board. yeah, probably had four tons, yeah. Going down to the Mooney Mooney, as you know, is a downhill grade. And as we started to come down, we realised there was something wrong with the truck and Robert was in panic mode trying to pull the truck up and not let us go over the bridge. And he was he did manage to pull the truck up. And when we got out of the truck, all four, they were dual tyres, the tyres on the outside, the whole four of them had come off. The tyres had come off. They had they weren't flat or, no, or uh, had, the had somehow... bolts burst. had sheared off. The bolts had sheared off. So the four tyres. All at once. All at once. Quite a coincidence, wouldn't it be, for all that for that to occur all at once? And and so these things, from what I gather, were more or less routine in that business, particularly if you had some good horses. Oh, definitely. You'd hear about incidents within the trotting industry all the time. Now this is something that the police may not know about because it's something that you've learned just very recently. But one particularly notorious figure was apparently a visitor at your farm. Tell me about that. Yes, I've only come across this information um, that apparently... um, Christopher Dale Flannery? Yes, that's correct. Had um, come to the property with my father as his guest. And Christopher Dale Flannery, for those who don't know, is uh, otherwise known as Rent-A-Kill. And he was... Um, uh, 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 basically, a hitman, a, a hire, a, a murderer for hire, uh, who ran a contract killing business. Most of it um, uh, inspired by, motivated by, marketed by, if that's the right term, Roger Rogerson. And Christopher Dale Flannery was in Sydney. By my reckoning, by about 1983, and he disappeared in 1985, uh, 9th of May 1985. So there was a period of around two or three years where he was known as, a, you know, where he was based in Sydney. There were other times when he was in Sydney, but but so it would have been around about that time uh, that 
your father hosted Christopher Dale Flannery. It's a shame you may not remember it, but but uh, you would have been in your early 20s. It's a shame you don't, don't have any recollection. He had him over for dinner, is that right? I'm not quite sure why he was there. Or just on the property, yeah. yeah. I don't know why he was there, and I, I wouldn't have known. Like, I was very naive back then, which probably saved me <laughs> in a lot of ways, that I was so naive and I didn't pick up on all those things. Um, I believe he just came to see the horses and the setup of yep. the farm. And, and Christopher Duff Flannery, well, sounds like a monster. He was actually quite a well-dressed fellow. He was uh, didn't sort of look like a gangster, if you know what I mean. He was uh, quite a... Um, uh, he was described by Len McPherson as he looked like a bloody real estate agent when I saw him. So, so he didn't look like a, an horrific person that he actually was. So, yes, so there's these sort of nefarious relationships going on all of the time. time. This is because it's racing for money. It's not just prize money. It's racing for money with the bookies, money with the tote. Correct. And there was always big money. And, I, I like, I was aware... There was big money going on and there was things going on around me, but I never really understood how big it was. Is it very is it possible, given the nature of the threat, occurred six weeks before your son's death, that, that, that uh, Camilla Rainbow was not to run and didn't run at Harold Park when it was supposed to, um, but that your husband actually referred that to stewards? Would that be possible motivation for uh, some sort of vengeance uh, enacted against your husband? Obviously, that would have came from somewhere and it was um, targeted at my husband, not my father. So you would have suspicions of what did he do or what was he doing to cause that somebody to ring up and say that. We, um, I've made a number of attempts to contact your ex-husband, and you've made a number of um, attempts to to contact him. It, it's very clear that he doesn't want to discuss this. No, he doesn't. No. Um, the last attempt, he actually called the police and asked them to tell me to no, do not contact him or come near him. Yes. Um, <clears throat> uh, and, and that may be. We're not going to insinuate anything from that other than he may just not want to talk about it anymore. Oh. Yes, uh, we're not going to insinuate motives, but but uh, he does he, he you know he does not want to discuss this matter with you. But uh, someone did tell you something of 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 great note, and, and quite recently, as I understand it, and that's when you and I first made contact. You made contact with me. Um, uh, what did that? Well, who was that person? And and without giving her name away, um, and what did she tell you? The person was somebody that I've known most of my life and we have been close. And what she told me was that my son's death was actually directed at my husband. At your husband? Yes. Okay. And what did you think? I mean, this is when you started reaching out to people like myself for some assistance. Did it make sense to you? I have to say yes, it did, because I was always aware there was more to my son's death than I had been told, and what I'd been told never made sense to me. I just want to go over 
the circumstances of your son's death again, having told us the background, the harness racing business, the threats, etc. And we're going to go through just as the circumstances of, of, of that death. Your son was electrocuted when he entered a dam and I believe he was yabbying. Um, and, uh, and, and he was electrocuted because there was a cable that ran from the pump that had been immersed in the water. Yes. Now that does lead to a prospect of an accident, what I would describe an accident driven by negligence of you, from your father who just continued to allow this cable, you know, in, in all sorts of terrible states to, 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 to and, and repaired in a sort of haphazard um, and unskilled way um, to occur. But there, it could easily have been uh, 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 the, the death of your son might easily have been directed at your husband um, uh, f- under the same sorts of circumstances. It really just needed someone to put that cable into the water. It was also the cable, but it was also there was an issue with the PowerPoint that even if we had turned the PowerPoint on because it had it was still connected, it would. It would it was still going to be electrified. So something had also been done with the PowerPoint. As I understand it, looking through the coronial records, that the pump itself would actually, or the, 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 the pump and its connections would actually blow out fuses on, a, on several occasions at the, at the house. Is that correct? Do you remember that? No, sorry, I don't. That, that that's, according, been... that's according to your father's well, statement. It... So he'd ha- he he indicates here that he had to replace um, fuse fuses fuse wire possibly back in those days on several occasions. I'm not aware of that, but this is just in his statement. Yeah. Um, so what I'm saying is, as it stood, it, it seemed pretty unsafe. Mm, yes. And it was allowed to continue to be unsafe. That's what I can glean from the from the facts. But that also means that if anyone uh, either accidentally or purposefully put some of that line into the water or <clears throat> then that and then, then that is going to earth into the earth into the dam itself that's correct and your husband was the one who was the primary user primary user of the dam that's that's those are the two facts that we can establish we can definitely establish how do you feel now, knowing what you know now, and seeing that it's not just your husband, but there have been a number of other people that I've tried to contact and no one really wants to talk about this. How do you feel now about this? Do you still blame your father? Yes, in some circumstances I do, because I believe my father knew something more about what was happening around my husband at the time because the, that week leading up to my son's death, my mother came round and asked or demanded that I got my husband, Robert, to talk to my father, which was very unusual because my mother never had anything to do with anything to do with the horses. And that was, that was you believe, that was associated with the harness racing business? I believe she was worried that my husband was not taking precautions about something. That may, that may have involved 
may have uh, attracted the, the, the anger or retribution of some of these organised criminal figures that were hanging around harness racing. Yes, because the other reason I believe that is when I spoke to this, or this person spoke to me, they also noted that my husband was very aware that there was something going on behind the scenes with what his behaviour had been. Well, and just six weeks before, you've received a serious... Well, yes. he, he received, through you, had received a very serious threat. And he was ignoring it. It remains a live possibility that it was an accident, though. An accident driven by, as I said, your, your, your father's negligence. Um, do you still contemplate that possibility? Not as much as I did before. I, f- I feel there's a piece of this jigsaw puzzle missing. And we do remind listeners that this is part of an active police investigation. It was <coughs> 40... 36. 36 years. That's my terrible maths, 87 to 23. Uh, 36 years ago, if Troy was alive today, he'd be into his middle age. He would have married. He would have had children. Presumably those sorts of things, he would have acquired property, done all those things that adults do. He was cheated of a life, wasn't he? Definitely. He was a beautiful boy. He was he was caring. He was he loved his sister. He, him and his sister went everywhere together. And that was our first thought when he went missing, where was his sister? Because it was very unusual they were apart. And what do you what do you hope comes from this? I hope Troy gets his justice and the truth is told. The word closure, we often use it, we often overuse it. It doesn't really mean terribly much, does it? Because you'll always be afflicted by the grief of the death of your son. Definitely. But you want to find the truth, don't you? I do. I believe Troy deserves the truth. Thank you for joining me today, Jenny. Um, I know it's been a very difficult uh, process for you um, and... uh, Uh, We've been in contact for for quite some time, uh, back and forth, trying to dig up things that people don't really want to have dug up. Uh, It's been extremely difficult uh, for for me to contact people. They're just unwilling to speak. But um, I want to thank you for your time today, and we hope that this podcast, it'll go to a fair chunk of people, um, will uh, will maybe just uh, stir something in someone that that uh, might come forward and assist to give you that truth. That's all we can hope for, that somebody will, you know, come forward. Thank you, Jenny. And also joining me today... Uh, in regard to the story, uh, in regard to the tragic story of uh, of the death of Troy Alderton, is is uh, Troy's sister, uh, Mel de Groot. How are you, Mel? I'm good. How are you, Peter? I'm good, thank you. Now, you tell me what you remember of that day. Um, unfortunately, too much. Um, How was, old were you? I was six years old. Right. I was six years old when um, Troy was tragically killed. And um, I probably, I can remember little bits and pieces the morning but for me, the evening was what will always be engra- you know, engraved in my brain, and that was basically um, um, my parents, you know, 
being Saturday afternoon, mum's getting ready to um, put the football on for Troy and um, I was actually looking for my brother. Couldn't find him, you know, typical kid have come inside. Have you seen Troy? I've got the no. And I walked around the corner to where my grandparents' house is and my grandfather was outside and I said, have you seen Troy? And he said no. But instantly there was an alarm. There was he. It was. It's quite interesting because it was the nineteen eighties. No one would really get worried if you were semi-rural. Yeah, semi-rural. At dinner time, if it was dark, you know, usually they would have just said, "Oh, well, he's probably riding his push bike or riding pony or something," you know, doing something like that. But the second I said I couldn't find my brother, my grandfather was really alarmed. So him and I started looking for Troy, and then Dad joined in, and then. Um, it sort of grew f- progressively from there and then next thing, you know, because they're calling him and they kept going over to the dam, I went down the back with my mum. So that was the focus of where people were looking yes. straight away? Yes, okay. straight away. Did you often play around the dam with your with your brother? No, we didn't. We did a lot of, um, we had ponies, so we'd take our little ponies out and I had a Shetland that we used to pretend was a school bus or ride our bikes or play through the hay sheds, um, see what was going on. Was the dam a bit of a no-go area? It was. um, It just wasn't somewhere that we went off. If we were going there, we'd go with mum and dad. I I can't remember if it was sort of ingrained into us that you don't go there by yourself or whether it was a fact of we just didn't because it didn't really interest us at that stage. There was another dam down the bottom where they used to swim the horses and if we were going to go somewhere, we'd be watching them swim. Um, so that was more of a... Could you swim? I could swim. And Troy? Yes. We both did swimming lessons. Um, there was some indication on statements, and it might have been your grandfather's, that he jumped in the car or someone jumped in the car and drove to the shops because they thought he might have gone to the shops. Yeah, I'm not sure who went over to the shops. I was just basically, um, yeah, going, looking with mum and came back and then mum sort of disappeared and I'm walking up the driveway and I saw um, Roy Roots and Rita Roots driving in. And they were, you know, I can still remember their white um, Ford Falcon, like the, I think it was a Fairlane or something, coming down the driveway. And Roy has dived out of the car. And that's what probably got my attention first. You know, being a young kid, he's jumped out of the car. He's the driver and the car's still going. And he's running. And I thought, well, if he's running, I'm running after him. So I've chased him. And he's gone through the fence. I've gone through the fence. And at that stage, my grandfather was still, I'm not sure if he came behind us or came around the side. And they ran around to the side of the dam and Roy saw something and he went to jump into the dam and he was instantly thrown. He was thrown backwards. Some metres as I understand. It was a good hit because I think it stunned him. Like he was stunned after he'd been thrown. And my grandfather at that stage it was down into his um, underwear and singlet was trying to get into the dam and he was being electrocuted. So he got thrown as well. He was pushed. Oh. Um, and then there was some attempt to yell out or call. He doesn't mention that in his statement. No, yeah. he doesn't. Mm. Um, you know. But 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 you remember that. And, and do you, you remember, this must be an awful memory, but do you remember seeing your... Uh, brother's body removed from the dam yes i do um 
I remember him being removed. I don't know really who was doing I think I was more, I'm six years old and I'm trying to interpret the the, what I'm seeing and it was just too shocking yeah it was a very harrowing and I was at that stage told to go inside um which I did but unfortunately it's now becoming dark and I'm a six-year-old being left in the house by themselves and not knowing what's going on and scared I probably did the worst thing I could have done for myself I came back out again and um at that stage there was a whole heap of people and they had the headlights of a, I think it was a Kingswood or something over the dam. So that was the only lights. We had the headlights and that trying to light up. Police were there? Police um, were there at that, that time, but I, it was they were just arriving. And when I got out there, I'm standing with people. I have no idea who they were. And like I knew a lot of people. Couldn't see my dad. Couldn't see anyone familiar. And my mum was doing resusc- resuscitation on my brother. And she's saying, come on, mate. Come on, mate. Come on, mate. Because your father and your grandfather and grandmother, they've returned to the house by that stage? You didn't know? I didn't know. So I've come out. The house was empty. um, And I'm standing outside. And I probably was out there probably 10 or so, I don't know, 10 or so minutes. The ambulance have turned up. And all I could see, Mum trying to resuscitate my brother. And there's water pouring out of him as she's doing that. You... um You've obviously carried a lot of grief around yourself ever since that day. I, I have. And I don't think anyone actually really realised till later on down the track that I was there. I was there that night. Um, and, and probably, you know, the worst thing for me at you that stage. You saw what you probably shouldn't have seen. Shouldn't have seen as a child. Mm. Um, it was decided in those days it was a good idea, you know, to give me some form of closure. I don't know if it's a hospital, psychiatrist or whatever, that after... My brother was declared dead at the hospital and the family went to see him that I saw my brother who had been burnt at that stage um, in one of their rooms. So I was taken in to view him. Yeah, that's a tough thing. It is. You have to endure it at at, at six years of age. Um, What do you hope will come of a police investigation. We've at least police are now looking at this again. Um, uh, the, from what I can tell of the records, and you've been through them as probably as uh, deeply as as I have, probably more deeper. It seems to me that there wasn't a great deal of curiosity about anything that had taken place uh, on that day. That, that the police sort of did it by the numbers. Um, uh, a tragic death of a tragic accidental death that was sort of assumed that it was an accidental death from the outset and that may be the case but um, it didn't seem like there were enough questions asked Is that's that right? probably the big one there was not enough questions asked and even as a child you know I, I, I think I said this to my cousin this morning I, I remember being a really inquisitive I, you know, I talked a lot and asked lots of questions but um, I was always getting shut down. It was... So every time you tried to talk about it... Yeah. No one would want to talk about it. It wasn't the thing that I could talk about. I had a mum who was devastated and I had a dad who went on living and as if he never existed. Kind of switched off. I he gather. switched off. My dad switched off and it was a permanent switch off. I'm, you know, I sort of grew up 
where I didn't ever feel I could ever talk to him about my brother's death. There was not... Um, so when you tried to talk to him, what would he say? What made me so aware of that was actually an incident that happened when I was about 12, and that was um, my his wife accidentally... She found this beautiful photo, thought it was him when he was a child, dressed up a little cowboy, got it pre-printed and framed and gave it to him. And I happened to be there when she gave it to him and he flipped out, totally flipped out. Because at that stage, there was never a photo at all of my brother in their house. It was like he was just erased. And what did he say? He just went, that's Troy, it's Troy. And she just kept saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, he ended up keeping the photo. I don't know if it was because it was Troy or if it was the fact that he knew that she'd made an unintentional mistake, but that was the only photo you'd ever see in the end. But it wasn't because he put it up. It was because it was a accidental, not realising that it was his son, not himself. So that, that always told me that I can't talk about it. Um, his behaviour... And just his dismissiveness. Jenny says she compares the situation to other parents who have lost a child to untoward misadventure, who will never find peace with the situation until the why and the how is answered. If anyone is responsible, they should be held accountable, she says. But even then, she knows the son who meant so much to her can never be returned or replaced. But having some definitive answers may bring some form of peace. And we remind listeners of the Conditional Release Program, we can only bring you this sort of quality content with your support, and we really appreciate it. The best way to keep the podcast going is by going to our Patreon and throwing in a few bucks. Yeah, go to www.patreon.com backslash the Conditional Release Program. And for as little as $5 a month, you can support the program and have access to premium content, Zoom chats with Jack and Joel, me and Joel, and even be present when we record the program. Yeah, we need your help make this sort of thing sustainable. We don't want to put the hat out after something so harrowing, but this is the thing we need time and resources to coordinate. It just is what it is. And that takes us out from the program for the week. Much love to Jenny and Mel, and we hope the podcast has given them the opportunity to tell their story and find some comfort from doing so. And As we said in the interview, the death of Troy Alderton is being reinvestigated by New South Wales Police. If you think you can provide some evidence, something of some benefit, please contact them on Crime Stoppers 1-800-333-000 or contact us by email at the program at gmail.com and we can pass on a reference number so what information you may have goes to the right people quickly. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take See care. Business. Bye.